So Genesis 17, I was going to start at verse 18, but I mean at verse 19, I'm not starting at 16, but there it says God is changing Sarah's name, Sarai's name to Sarah. She's going to be a mother of many nations. Verse 17, Abraham falls on his face. He laughs. And in his heart, not out loud, in his heart, he says, basically, I'm 100 and she's 90. And we're going to have kids. But in verse 18, Abraham said, this wasn't in his heart. Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And this is God's answer. Verse 19, And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee, behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget and I will make him a great nation of which we deal with to this day. Verse 21, but my covenant will I establish with Isaac which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And at that point, God leaves off talking with him. Amen. What an important conversation. Let's, uh, and we're feeling the effects of that conversation to this day. Let's, uh, let's ask that God that same God that spoke that day, that same God would speak today. Lord Jesus, we're mindful of you. We need you, God. We ask you to touch us and anoint us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. God, your ways. Teach us. Take us by the hand. Take us by the heart. Take us by the mind. Take us by the soul and our spirits. In Jesus' name, we commit this service and our lives and our futures totally into your hands in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. We certainly be seated. The uh, congregation I'm talking with, by the vast, vast majority of that, I'm confident, uh, know the background and the setting of this situation. But um, about 25 years before this, God called this man, at that time his name was Abram, and he called him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees into a land that he would show him. And he promised him a child at that time and promised him generations and seed that would come 
that would be, if he could count his seed, would be as the stars of the heaven, as the sands of the sea. Well, that's fine and well, but for ten years he does not have this promised child. Finally, his wife, again at that time Sarai, but we'll, we'll just go ahead and call her Sarah, him Abraham. She, uh, she, she's tired of waiting, she's tired of his frustration, and so she points out her handmaid that they had picked up during famine time when they had sojourned in Egypt, and um, her name was Hagar, and said, look, dude, marry her. I don't know that she actually said dude, but all things are possible, I guess. She really probably said, look, Lord. Um, and so he did, and she was a servant girl. She was a slave, technically. And uh, one day, in, uh, Sarah gives her a command, and, and she, 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 she has an attitude that day. She said, basically to this effect, I have something I must do. You what? I have news I have to share with my husband, Abram. And Sarah's got a feeling. And she goes in there and they hear a yelp come out of the tent. And the old man comes out smiling because he's going to. Abraham just got too excited and uh, he blew a circuit. So he, he, he's going to be a daddy now. Okay. Well, you know, it's like part of the plan. And, uh, but then a few days later, now we don't know the details, but you got to fill in the details and I'm talking today. So I'll fill in for us. She asks this girl to do something and she says, in case you hadn't heard, I'm in the motherly way. And I'm not feeling especially good today. It's too early in the morning. I have morning sickness. That what hap- that's what happens when you're going to give a baby, have a baby. Now, all the scripture says is that Sarah sees that she is despised in this girl's eyes. It's like, scoot over, old lady. I am about to produce a child for our husband. And so this doesn't go down good. And so Sarah, you know, uh, it's a give and take proposition. And so she's like, you dish it out, Hagar, I'll dish it back in spades. That's a term we're not familiar with, but what that means is uh, she's going to let her have it. And so she starts mistreating her to the place so bad, so hard, so that, that, that Hagar runs off into the wilderness. She's, she's getting out of there, and the Lord meets her, and the Lord tells her, look, uh, I'm going to make a nation, quite a nation out of your boy. You go back and submit yourself to your mistress, Sarah. And that went over like a lead brick, but she did. 
And she went back and submitted. And so the animus between those two ladies wasn't much. Finally, Ishmael is born, but he begins pretty quickly to find out that he's also fulfilling the rest of the prophecy that God gave to his mother in the wilderness, that this boy's going to be a wild man. And uh, his hand's going to be turned against every man. And so thus was Ishmael, and thus we have seen on scriptural history and uh, in history that he was a wild man. And uh, so we don't know how soon that began to develop in childhood, but a little bit goes a long ways. And, uh, but he is his daddy's boy. I mean, that's it. Well, this goes on for another almost 15 years. And by that time, he's in his own element. He's come to the place. The teen years are years of temporary insanity to begin with. And so now he's, he's already prophesied to be a wild man. And so now he's a teen wild man. And, uh, and one day God visits and hence our text and says, uh, I'm changing Sarai's name to Sarah because she is going to be the mother of nations. And, and he falls on his face. He's laughing. He's trying not to laugh out loud. And it's like, I know I'm dealing with an omniscient God, but she's 90 and I'm 100. Duh. And, uh, and basically God says, now don't laugh. Later when he told Sarah and she laughed, God said, I'm going to tell you what, you guys both enjoy this so much. Name that kid laughter, which was Isaac. That's what it means. So uh, he says, uh, it's gonna, well, as he gets into this, our text, he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. He's basically going on a quarter of a century of waiting, and he's waited so long. This is not the message I'm preaching, but it's a good one to get. He was ready to settle for second best. Now, brothers and sisters, however tired we may get of waiting for a number of things, maybe revival or anything else, I'm going to tell you something. Don't ever settle for second best. Don't settle for second best. And there are too many people settling for second best. Hang in there, baby. God's got it. God's got it. He's got it. He's got it. So anyway, the child is born. Now when one day Sarah comes out of her tent and, and, and she says, make sure you get those clothes clean, girl. I don't feel so hot today. I have news to take to my husband. And, she, and, and, and like in my mind, I got a good imagination. So Hagar is watching her go into the tent. And if she thought Abraham gave a whoop when she told him about her soon to be born child, she hears a veritable scream. That old man probably came out of the tent dancing, shouting to I'm finally going to have a son! To which Ishmael, what am I, chopped liver? And I can only imagine Hagar's heart sinking. And I can see as 
Abraham is hugging this 100-year-old man and this 90-year-old woman. And just they're like spring chickens with smiles on their faces. And, uh, and here we go. So whatever party they had for the birth of Ishmael, we can only imagine a party they had for Isaac. And then the years go by, and it comes time for Isaac to be weaned. Now, the weaning process in those days was nothing, nada, like what we do today. And uh, the weaning process, when Samuel was weaned by his mother Hannah, she takes him by the hand and she delivers him to Eli and he goes to work immediately in the tabernacle. So he, she didn't bring a baby to Eli. What am I going to do with a baby? But he, she could bring a boy and a boy ready to go to work. Weaning processes in those times, six years, five years, six years. In some cases, Jewish tradition, uh, Midrashic. They said they weren't weaned until 11 years old. So, count your blessings, mothers. And uh, so at any rate, she weans this child. And when the child is weaned, it gives Abraham an excuse to throw another party. And we're going to have a party. Oh, what's up? What's up? Isaac's weaned. Okay, And so they throw a big party. Well, we know he's old enough to appreciate the party. And we know he's old enough to appreciate the fact that Ishmael is taunting him at this party. He, he's, whatever he's doing, there's some torment involved with, with Isaac. Isaac knows, he's not a baby got winged and what's a strange face in my face? He knows Ishmael. He knows he's being taunted. And, and he's probably mad again for the God knows how many hundredth time in his life. And, 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 and so, so baby finally going to be a big boy. We don't know what he was doing. But Sarah sees it. And it's the straw that broke the camel's back. And so she makes a beeline to Abraham and says, enough is enough is enough. Get that kid and his mother out of here. And I don't mean yesterday, I mean now. And I think you could tell, Abraham could tell, she wasn't kidding. She was very serious. And, and so he's very, I mean, you can only imagine. I mean, this is... This, this is tension to the nth degree, but you can't remove yourself from the tension. That is your son, Ishmael. And yes, you did marry that woman. And now you've got your child of promise and you've been with Sarah a long time. And so this is a real deal until God taps him on the shoulder, basically, and said, do what Sarah's telling you. Now, boy, that's a horse of a different color. The issue is now settled completely. There is still drama, but the trauma of decision is over. With Abraham, that was the final voice. And so we don't know how he broke it to her.
But just in case you want to wrap your head around this, she had been with him, we know, at least a quarter of a century. And her severance pay was a loaf of bread and a bottle of water. And she is sent off into the wilderness, not into a palace. So there she goes. Might have been a couple of loaves, but there she is. She gets out in the wilderness. After a while, she runs out of water. She runs out of bread. The Bible says she puts the lad under a bush. We think of the term lad as this little boy. It was not a little boy. Any more than Isaac, as we shall get to, and is being offered up, was not a little boy. He was a boy strong enough to carry enough wood on his back to the top of a mount that could burn him to a crisp. So this lad simply means son, basically. So he's there under a bush. She doesn't want to see him die. She goes to die in her spot. Now all these are creating real emotions, folks. These are real people. These are real deals. And we've all known what it is to deal with family stuff, cousin stuff, aunts, uncle stuff, even that far removed, how poignant and painful and, and deeply riveting things can be. This is a real deal. And so as she is not wanting to hear her boy give his last gasp, the voice of God begins to speak to her again. Basically, I didn't forget you. Lift up your eyes. And she sees a well. And uh, hence it's Beersheba from evermore. And she sees the well. And he said, I'm going to make him, like I told you, a great nation. And it happened. So here we are, amen, all these centuries, millennia later, and we're still feeling the effects, that stone of pathos that hit that water of time is still rippling into this 21st century. It was deep-seated roots planted, and it's a deal. Now, in the 22nd chapter, verse 2, God speaks again. And, and in, in the 175 years that Abraham lived, we only have eight records of God speaking to him. I'm sure he spoke to him more, but there's only eight times that we read of God speaking to Abraham. I'm sure he did more. But if it was just those eight... That means he heard from God on an average of every 21 and a half years. So if you hear from God every 21 and a half years, what do you do? In between times, you keep walking. You keep living for him. You keep doing what he told you to do the last time he talked to you. You keep going forward. You keep going forward. Well, on this occasion, God says... Take now thy son, listen closely, thine only son, whom thou lovest. He didn't say thine only son that you have. He said thy only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. 
and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I shall tell thee of. And again, we can only imagine the pathos of that, of, of him. And three-day journey, and he suffers in absolute silence. He says to the servants, we're going up there to worship. We're coming back. He lays out the wood. He says, lay down. Before that, he says, Father, you got the coals of fire and I see the knife and we got the wood, but I don't see the sacrifice. God will provide himself. A lamb, lay down. Now, it's one thing to read that, but it's one thing to be Abraham and it's another thing to be Isaac. He crawls up there and he closes his eyes and he lies still. And the old man raises the knife and at the highest point, just before he is about to take the boy's heart out, the Lord speaks again. He says, don't touch him. Now, I know who's really number one. I know you fear me. I know you love me. I know, I know you have doted on this boy. You waited for him in great anticipation, as it were, for a quarter of a century. He could have been 20 years old. He could have been 25. Some commentary think he was 33. Be that as it may, we have this. Now, uh, in 2019, in case you haven't noticed, Ishmael and Isaac still got tr troubles. It's still very much alive and well. They both claim Abraham as their father. And, um, and the race is still on. And it's going to culminate. And we have so much to do with that because somewhere in all of this process of the culmination of the Ishmael, Isaac, and the entire world getting engrossed into this, the church is involved. And somewhere in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're getting out of here. Amen. But we read about him every day. And we deal with it in our own ways. So, can I propose to you that God was just as much aware of 2019 as he was the day that Sarai said, take Hagar to wife. He's omniscient God. And he knows the ends from the beginning the things that are not as though they'd already happened. This is a God who is almighty and he's omniscient. He is extremely, totally, absolutely supreme in power and in all knowledge of knowing every single item there is to be known, he knows it. 
And so he was aware of this service today as well as he was aware of Hagar's and Sarah's problems. So this is the God that we're dealing with today. And we, we need to remember some things about this God. In Ecclesiastes, we're told about kingship and the supreme king of kings is, of course, our God. When it comes to kingship, it says, Be not hasty to go out of his sight, nor stand not in an evil thing. For he, especially the king of kings, doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Okay, where the word of a king is, there is power. Who may say unto him, What doest thou? And ain't nobody here. We've all said it in one way, shape, form, or the other. God, what are you doing? But we ain't got no right to be saying, what are you doing? He's God. He's God. Now, it's hard to keep that in mind when your back's to the wall and the knife's to your throat. But still, he's God. Isaiah 46, 9 says, remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is none else. I am God. There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Now, there was a king named Nebuchadnezzar that he thought he, he came to a place he thought he was omnipotent. God warned him. He had a dream. And, and Daniel tried to tell him, you better walk softly, king. This dream's to your enemies, but he didn't, he didn't listen. So about a year after the dream, give or take, he stands out on the veranda of his great palace and he's looking out across that great city of Babylon that represents that great kingdom of Babylon. And he says, isn't this not the kingdom which I have made for my pleasure and my glory? And while he's talking about me, 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 I, 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 how great, 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 I, 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 am, 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 the watchers. So you've crossed the line, dude. And we don't know how long it took him from the beginning of the scrambling to where they finally figure out there ain't nothing left to do with this cat. Put him out under the trees. He, his, his physical condition changed to the place. His hair grew so thick it was like feathers. And he didn't want to eat any more ribeyes and porterhouses and and all that. He wanted grass. So they put him out in a nice field and he's crawling around on hands and knees eating grass looking like a bird crawling. And it's not for a week or two. It's for seven years. Seven years. And one day he comes into being and he opens his eyes. And he looks at himself and he looks at the mown grass and the last thing he remembered was him standing on the veranda and then maybe the dream came back. And about the time he convinces everybody his sanity's back, bless your heart, get out of my way and he's sitting on the throne, he starts dictating a letter that's going to go to all of the inhabitants of the kingdom of Babylon and inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, Nebi writes, and he, God, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth, and not, nobody can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? This was the most powerful man on earth. 
that finally woke up and smelled the coffee and said, you be God, not me. Ephesians 1.11, a paraphrase, puts it, this God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. We need to keep this stuff in mind in this 21st century. Listen, God is still in control. I don't care what the political parties are saying. I don't care what the forces are doing. And I know it's a whack job. I'm, hey, I live in California. But I will say this in defense of California to all you Californiaites. It's crazy. It's wacky. I will not be in a commercial, doing a commercial for the state anytime soon. Between the graffiti, the earthquakes, the traffic jams, the droughts, the floods, the fires, the best politicians on earth. It is still the land of revival. And I mean that with all my heart. It's the land of revival. But there it is. You, you got to keep reminding yourself. This God works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. Amen. Just a couple of examples. Notice this, how God works stuff according to what he has in mind, not what we have in mind. 2 Samuel 24, 1, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he, meaning God, everybody say God. Say God. Moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. First Chronicles 2, or First Chronicles 21, 11, and Satan, we won't say Satan. Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Well, was it God or Satan? Chronicles said Satan. Kings or Samuel says it was God. Can I tell you something? On his best day, Satan is on a leash. On his best day. On his best day. Understand, it was God that brought Job to mind. With, hey, where you been? Up and down, to and fro throughout the earth. Well, have you considered Job? This omnipotent God. Which is pretty interesting because that was the first portion of the Bible ever penned. Isn't it interesting that when God chose the first chapter of his Bible, it would be Job. Because he knew we need doctrine, we need salvation. But I'm going to tell you something. We all need Job every day in some way, shape, form, or another. And one thing we need about Job is to remember he sits in the heavens. He talks when he wants to. He answers when he wants to. He does what he wants to. He's still in control. Job, don't forget that. And Job did a pretty, he didn't get an A on every chapter. But I'm going to tell you, ultimately he said, I don't care if he kills me. I still trust him. He's my redeemer. And I'm going to see him one of these days for me myself. Because he's God. He's God. He's the almighty God. So after David numbers Israel, God gives him three choices. He said, you did wrong, boy. He said, three days, 
pestilence, three months at your enemies, three years famine. And David said, I'm not smart enough to choose. Don't let me fall into the hands of man. You choose. He chooses the pestilence. So while God is angels about destroying throughout the length and breadth of Israel, starting in Jerusalem, and David sees an angel, and, and he's about to destroy the swords in his hand, he begins to plead, God, I was the one. Don't get these sheep. I was the one. And so the angel of the Lord commands him and say, and the angel stood on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And so then he, the angel of the Lord sends Gad. Gad says to David, go up, set an altar on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He buys it from Ornan. He offers up the sacrifice at the site of Ornan the Jebusite. Why did God go through all that? He has a host of reasons that are all his. But in 2 Chronicles 3.1, David is now dead and in the grave. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, Abraham, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Ornan the Jebusite. I'm about to give you the title of what I want to preach about. And I'm not, I know it's late, but I'm going to just stick with me. Abraham Lincoln, March 4th, 1865, stood on what was the bloody, bloody fields of Gettysburg. And he gives the second, no, 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 that was, no, I take it back. Sorry. He is giving his second inaugural, Gettysburg's past. He's been reelected. He's standing at the White House giving the second inaugural. They know the war is almost over. And he says, neither party expected for the war, the Civil War, the magnitude or duration to which it has already attained. Neither side, neither North nor South, anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each, I'm going to interpolate, each side, north and south, looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. Each side invokes God's aid against the other. And he goes on, the prayers of both could not be answered. The prayers of neither have been answered fully. And then Abraham Lincoln said, the Almighty has his own purposes. And that's the title of what I'm preaching today. Brothers and sisters, in this 21st century, we're still dealing with an almighty God that has his own plans. 
and his own purposes. And he rules in the heavens. He goes on and says, Woe unto the world because of offenses. He's quoting scripture. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. After he quotes scripture, how would a president do today quoting scripture? He said, if we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, by the providence or allowance of God, must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he, God, now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, both sides. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass. Listen closely. Yet if God wills that this war continues until the wealth, all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. And until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As it was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Abraham Lincoln had an insight that the Almighty has his own purposes and he, amen, is judging this nation. That was in 65. Back in 61, he was talking to a delegate from New Jersey. He said, those who fight the purposes of the Almighty will not succeed. They always have been and always will be beaten. And in case you wonder if that was just in Lincoln's mind, let me read to you something that Stonewall, excuse me, that Robert E. Lee wrote in May 5th of 1861. He said, both sides, north and south, forget that we are all Americans. I foresee that the country will pass, this is before the war started, will pass through a terrible ordeal, a necessary expatiation perhaps for our national sins and they called it amen the message that kept Abraham Lincoln's sanity he's an almighty God and he's judging this nation and here we are and we go through I'm not going to this is not a history lesson a personal opinion everybody's got their opinions I've been to the house where Stonewall Jackson died Standing outside of the house where he died, killed by friendly fire. One of his own men shot him, didn't realize, thought it was federal, federal agents, federal soldiers. And in the house where he died, outside on a placard, David Lloyd George, the supreme commander of Great Britain in World War I, the prime minister, he said, in this house, the Confederacy died. Because there's a good chance they would have never lost at Gettysburg if Stonewall Jackson 
would have been alive. Pete Longstreet, at one point, he went to Lee. This is before Pickett's charge. He begged him. He said, the Union Army's there. We are here. Washington, D.C. is over there. Build campfires. Leave just enough men to let them know we're around. We march on Washington. All of the defenders are now over there. We win the war. Stonewall Jackson would have looked at that and said, Duh, let's go. But Longstreet was not Stonewall. And for whatever reason, Robert E. Lee called for Pickett's charge. And in Clarksville, Tennessee, at the beginning of the war, 960 teenage boys and men signed up to fight for the Southern cause. By the time Gettysburg started, a little over two years later, the number was down to 365. After the first two days of Gettysburg, there were 60 men left. After Pickett's charge, there was three. And think if you lived in Clarksville. And it was over. But Lincoln said, if all the money saved by bondsmen is sunk in this war and all the blood drawn with lashes is paid for. He's the almighty God and he has his own purposes. If they'd took Gettysburg, they would have won the war. If they'd have won the war, there would be two nations. If there'd been two nations, there would not have been a United States of America to go to the Deliverance of Europe in World War I. If you've ever read the history of the beginnings of World War I, it is a, it is a comedy of errors. I'm telling you, uh, the, the Archduke Ferdinand got killed and nobody even liked him. Not even, not even the, the head of Austria. He didn't even like him. He was his nephew. They, nobody liked him and they liked his wife less. Nobody cared that guy got assassinated. But it got worse, and one thing led to another. It was a comedy of errors, and out of like nowhere in this chaos, here comes this, this world war. Some say 25, some say 50 million died. And, but in the midst of all of it, there's a guy named Allenby who's down fighting in the Middle East. And the Ottoman Empire... I don't want to bore you, but the Ottoman Empire jumped in on Germany's side. For years, I wondered, duh, why would you join the German? You have nothing to gain or lose. And I read the other day why the Ottoman Empire joined the Kaiser. Because they had ordered five ships from Great Britain, and Great Britain had them built, and before delivery of the war, and, and Great Britain said, hey, we need these ships for our... And it made... The Turks mad. And so Kaiser Wilhelm gave them five ships and they said, we're on your side. Duh. So they have ruled for a thousand years and a thousand years, what, part of what they've ruled is Palestine. Now they're on the Kaiser side. 
And Allenby's got T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and they've led a revolt against the Ottomans, and it's a long story. But, and, and, and the collapse of World War I left many German scraps in their head. Why did this thing fall? And everybody's got their opinions, but it's pretty interesting to me that when Edward Allenby took Jerusalem, 18 days later, the war was over. 18 days, and it's over. Could it be the Almighty who has his own purposes said, Ottomans, I don't want you in here no more. I got other plans for this place. And in order for them to get the Arabs and the Jews to fight on their side, they made all kinds of promises to the Arabs about ruling instead of the Turks, and they made promises of a homeland to the Jews. Bellflowers, white paper. And it was such a mess, only one man could sort it out, and that was Winston Churchill. And he came out of oblivion, set up what is today Transjordan, and on and on and on. But could it be the Almighty had his own purposes? And so now the Jews are coming out of Russia. And now, the, and you see pictures of, of Jews standing on street corners in major cities of the United States. Amen. Begging Jews, come back home, back, back home. And God was fulfilling Jeremiah 17, sending forth fishers, and they would fish them. But they, that wasn't getting it. So God finished the verse. He said, I'll send forth fishers, and they'll fish him. And if that don't work, I'll send forth hunters, and they will hunt them from the caves of the rocks. And so when the fishers weren't doing as good as the hunters, within 20 years, God raised up. I'm sorry. The Bible says he raises over the nations the basest of men. Even David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, said without Adolf Hitler that had never been in Israel. The Almighty has his own purposes. And buddy, when Hitler was done and the war was over and the camps were revealed, remnants, Jews from all over the world of their diaspora now were desperate and they began to flock back into Jerusalem and into Israel. And in May 14th, 1948, amen, they declared their independence, which was a pretty bodacious thing, seeing how they were outnumbered 100 to 1. And the State Department was headed by the most popular man in the world, George C. Marshall. And if you go to the Truman Library, you won't find this anywhere else, but at the Truman Library, he told Truman, if you recognize Israel, I quit. He was the most popular man in the world. When Queen Elizabeth was receiving her inauguration, amen, he came as a representative of the United States as he's walking through Westminster Cathedral, amen, with somebody. Everybody in Westminster Cathedral is standing and cheering. And, and Marshall says, what are they cheering about? He said, it's you, Mr. Marshall. He was that popular. He told Truman, if you recognize Israel, I quit. 
And Truman answered him, we're not voting for oil. We're voting for righteousness. Those people deserve a nation. And Truman was not a sweet man. They used to call him, give him Hades Harry. But he did sit on a Baptist Sunday school and they taught lessons after lessons about David and Goliath and Israel. And now he's president. Not, and Roosevelt, I'm telling you, would have never recognized Israel. I'm just telling you. That was proven by the war. But, amen. God raised up a guy named Harry S. Truman because the Almighty has his own purposes. And for whatever reason, not only did the United States, the Soviet Union recognized Israel, shocked the whole world, and a month later, it shocked them. Like, what do we do that for? Because the Almighty has his own purposes. Can I just tell you, that's the God we're working with. That's the God. Hallelujah. And now here's this nation of Israel. And if you wonder if they're not interesting, in 2016, Israel by themselves produced over 8,000 patents. 8,000. Almost every one of them military patents. The entire Muslim Muslim-led national world, all the nations in the world that have Muslim governments, together had about 500 patents. In 2016, Iran had 50. You getting the picture? They're not only Abraham's seed of the sand, the church are the stars. We're the spiritual seed of Abraham. Israel is the sandy seed of Israel. And those are only two things God's interested in this world right now. His bride and Israel. That's it. The Almighty is interested in this one God, Jesus' name, apostolic church. Amen. And he's interested in Israel and everything else that's going to come into it. The Almighty has his own purposes. All right. I know I'm going. I was on a plane with a guy. He's a Republican. He voted for Trump. He saw me reading my Bible. He said, I see you. Are you a pastor? I said, well, I'm, I, I was. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm what they call a bishop now. My son's the pastor. Oh, and he talked about the denomination he was. And he's a leader in his church and does this and that. He's a, he's a well-known attorney in, uh, in Houston. And he uh, said he was a Republican. And uh, he said, I voted for Mr. Trump. He said, I will never vote for him again. And he started talking. I thought I was talking to Pelosi. I'm just telling you, man. He just... and, and finally, I said, I said now, you, you, you said you're a member of such and such a church. Yes. So you do read scripture. Yes. I don't want to hurt him, but feeling, but I said, you do know the scripture says he puts over the nations the basest of men. Yes. I said, he's not a sweet man. No, he's not. I said, but it could be, could it be that God raised him up? Because all these presidents been run for office and we're going to recognize and put our embassy in Jerusalem. And nobody did. But the one that would, God raised him up. And, he, and I said, there's a good chance because he did that. And he recognized, nobody's touching the Golan Heights, that he'll probably get a second term. 
just because he's being good to Israel. And God said, I'll bless them that bless you and I'll curse them that curse you. You say, how do you know that? I don't know, but I know the Almighty has his own purposes. And Abraham Lincoln said, I'm not so concerned about God being on my side. I want to be on his side. And we better be on the side of the almighty, omniscient God that controls it all. That's our God. That's our Savior. That's our King of Kings. We are on his side. And I could go, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you. Um, musicians come just so they'll know that I'm kind of thinking about don't play no music. Just be up here. That'll buy me a little time. Joseph, when you're in the pit, don't forget the Almighty has his own purposes. When the Ishmaelites come and get you, don't forget the Almighty has his own purposes. When they sell you to the Midianites, don't forget the Almighty has his own purposes. When you end up in the hands of the Egyptians, the Almighty has his own purposes. When you're in Potiphar's house, you... The Almighty has his own purposes. When false accusations are haunting you, just don't forget the Almighty has his own purposes. When you end up in prison, don't forget the Almighty has his own purposes. When the butler forgets you, don't forget the Almighty has his own purposes. And listen, in one day, the Almighty's own purposes took him from a prison cell. They shaved him cleaned him up, and when the sun set, he was the second most powerful man in all of Egypt because the Almighty has his own purposes. That's this God that we are dealing with. When it came time for Moses to get him out, he said, don't worry, Moses, for very deed, for this cause, I've raised up this character because I want to show my power that my name be declared throughout all the earth. Amen. He'll be hardened six ways from Sunday, but before it's over, everybody's going to know Jehovah's God, Jehovah's God, Jehovah's God, because the Almighty has his own purposes. Ask David about his trials. and Where did he write all these psalms? Through his trials. This is why Paul would say all these things happened unto them for ensamples. They're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Things that happened in that Bible to them, the Almighty had his purposes. We got to keep these things in mind in the 21st century. Amen. One puts it this way. All these things as types did happen to those persons. They were written for our admonition. To whom the end of the ages did come. That's why God said, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. Your ways aren't my ways. My thoughts and my ways are higher than the earth. Amen. This God, David said, his way is perfect. Let's stand. This is why we can say, musicians, I really was serious. But I'm glad you're moving slow. You're good. Amen. We can read. We can quote. We can comfort. Put a hand on the shoulder of somebody that's suffering. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. That's easy to quote till our back's to the wall and knife's to our throat. But we got to keep in mind the Almighty has his own purposes.
And we got to trust him. I heard this, and I'll be done. Because he deals with Israel, with the church. The Song of Solomon, they said, was written for the nation of Israel to know how much he loved them. I believe it's also written to the church for us to know how much he loved us. But more importantly, it's written to every single one of us. He's interested in Israel. He's interested in Jewish people. He's interested in the church. And he's interested in you, sir, and you, ma'am. Every single one of us. And the Almighty has a purpose for your life. In 1607, the first successful colonization, the British Empire made its way. They landed in a place now known as Jamestown, Virginia. They built their first settlement. They were a Protestant settlement. They were there was a business venture, but they were also there for religious freedom. They wanted out. They built in a swamp. You can go to Jamestown today. It's about a mile from the original site. It's less mosquito infested than the original. But they've replicated it completely. Absolutely, totally. They say it's a perfect replica. And uh, when they landed... They were met by an Indian tribe, the Powhatans. I heard this back when we installed Brother Flowers as a pastor of a gravel ridge. Now check this out about the Powhatan Indian tribe. They were part of the Algonquins. There were 14 to 21,000 of them at that time that they know of. The chief, Wahan Seneca, and they don't know which chief it was because the Powhatans did not keep written records of who did what. But this was passed down in their lore. And so those think it could have been Wohun Seneca. The bottom line, one of these chiefs, perhaps him, went to his 14 or 15-year-old son one morning and he said, Arise follow me and the father with bow over his shoulder and arrows walked out of the camp and they walked 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 away from the coast and walked and they walked till they come to the hill country to areas where there are bluffs some and forested area back then obviously everywhere they've walked and they've walked until it gets late afternoon and Towards sunset, he finds a spot. Down below is a valley, and off in the distance, trees on yonder hills. And, and he sits him down on this area of this mount. He said, sit down here. Look that way. Don't turn around. 
Don't lie down. Don't stand up. Stay here. I will return. And then he blindfolded his son and tied the knot tight. He could see nothing. He said, do not remove this. Sometime in the morning when you know it's morning and you know it's morning because you feel the heat of the sun on you. When you know it's morning from the heat of the sun, then and only then can you remove what we call the blindfold. Yes, Father. And he could hear his father turn and walk off into the woods. And then he could tell the sun was going down. He could tell when the sun was down as the chill began to come in on his back. He began to hear the sounds of the mosquitoes as one would land on his arm. And he, he couldn't lay down. He couldn't stand up. He'd swat a mosquito. And then the night sounds of the kickadees and the sounds of the birds die. And the night sounds get deeper and deeper and he's colder and colder. And off in the distance he hears the the howl of a wolf in answering howls. And he hears as they get closer. As the night goes on, he hears the cry of a panther and the growls of the bears as they also tend to get closer. And every night sound and every howl and every scream and, and the hooting owls, is, you can only imagine this teenage boy's imagination running wild. And we can only imagine him, why, Daddy, why? Why? It goes on and on and on, hour after hour after hour. The sounds closer, the sounds ominous, the sounds... But he can't lay down. He can't arise. Nature takes its course. Life's life. Then he begins to hear the early morning sounds of the first chirping of the morning birds. But he knows he's lived in the woods. He knows... They'll chirp a long time before actual daylight. And he's waiting and waiting. Scratch. And then he thinks, he thinks, and then he hears more birds and more birds. He thinks, he thinks, he starts to feel the rays, but he's not sure. He waits. 
because his father told him to wait. And then he puts his hand on his back, they would say, and he feels the coolness of his back. He feels his forehead. It does feel a little warmer, but I got it. And when he makes, and then he knows, he knows he's feeling the heat. He know he knows. And he begins to lift the blindfold. And there the sun has come up over the tops of the distant hill and trees. And he's looking out over the valley. And he starts to turn. And he sees and he jerks. And he looks up. And his father is standing behind him, his legs apart, holding a taut bow. Mosquito bites all over his face, chest, and arms as he's holding a taut bow against the fiends of the night. And as he gets up, looking into his father's face, you can see the father as his muscles He's letting the tension go. And he stares at his son and says, We can go home now. You're a man, my son. And he walked home. That was an Indian chief. We're not even sure of his name. But I'm going to tell you something. We're serving a God that he's interested in making us men and women of God. And I'm sorry, but he, he's not going to explain every step he takes. He's not going to break everything down fine for us. But I'm going to tell you what he will do. He'll still be God. And I'll tell you something else. He's God of your family. He's God of your world. He's God of your church. He's your pastor's God. He's your God. He's my God. He's your God. And he's just as interested in us today as he was David in his day. Again, he faced Goliath and Saul and Absalom and all of it. I'm your God, David. Trust me. I'm your God, Job. Trust me. I'm your God, Paul. Trust me. I'm your God, Simon Peter. Trust me. Is there anybody here this afternoon? We won't tarry that long, but maybe you'd just like to step down and say, Almighty God, have your purpose in my life. I want to trust you. I want to be used of you. I want to see your grace. I want to see your glory. That doesn't mean that you're going to go through something hideous before sunsets. It just means you're saying, God, I love you. You have your own purposes in this 21st century. I want to be part of your plan. And if that's beating in your heart wherever you are, come on, sir. Come on, ma'am. Come on, mama. Come on, daddy. Come on down. Commit yourself, God. Here I am. Here I am.